Hello, and welcome to the A Conversation With Speaker Series podcast from the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute at Southwestern Law School. I'm your host, Orly Ravid, director of the Biederman Institute. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations with influential members of the entertainment, sports, and media law industries. Top-notch lawyers and other experts share their journeys and provide insights into hot-button topics. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to not miss out on the new episodes. In today's episode, we talk with Priyanka Kimani, founder and lead partner at Anand and & Anand and & Kimani. Priyanka is one of India's leading entertainment, music, and intellectual property rights experts. Priyanka is a savvy deal negotiator, and she's best known for her unmatched commercial and legal acumen in the Indian entertainment sector. She represents a growing roster of Indian and international stakeholders and talent. Priyanka will discuss the modern and fast-evolving entertainment and technology landscape in India. She'll answer questions and give the inside scoop about her work navigating the nuances of the copyright and licensing landscape, cross-border transactions, strategic collaborations, content creation, ownership, and protection of all forms of intellectual property. So without further ado, a conversation with Priyanka Kimani. Uh, Priyanka Kimani, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to just give us a little bit of an overview reminder of, of who you are, and, and then we'll get to the Q&A. And then uh, when we're done kind of having our chat, we'll open it up to the audience for their questions. And the way you can uh, relate your questions would be either in the chat or raising your virtual hand, and I'll be able to, to spot you and, 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 and connect you and, and we'll We'll have time for your question. All right, so Priyanka Kimani is the founder and lead partner at Anand and Anand and Kimani. And she is one of India's leading entertainment, music and intellectual property rights experts. She's best known for her commercial and legal acumen in the Indian entertainment sector. She represents a glowing roster of Indian and international stakeholders and talent. Her clientele includes some of the most celebrated names in film, television and music, including international record labels, publishers, distribution companies, studios, content streaming services and social media platforms, Emmy-nominated filmmakers and showrunners, as well as Oscar and Grammy winners, to name just a few. Her legal expertise and practice includes navigating the nuances of the copyright and licensing landscape in India, transparency and accountability of the local PROs, cross-border transactions, strategic collaborations, content creation and ownership, valuation and protection of all forms of intellectual property. Without further ado, please help me give a warm welcome to Priyanka Kimani. Thank you so much. Here's my virtual clapping. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Orly. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. You're super welcome. And you know, what's funny is before you came on, some of our alums uh, you know, knew of you. And in fact, you and David Helfand, who's here tonight, seem to have been on a oh, panel together once in Mumbai. Yes. Oh, How are you? What a pleasure. So nice lovely to see, to see you. you. <laughs> Super. So um, without further ado, let's let's get started. Um, I mean, just as an overall sense of your practice, can you I mean, we, we obviously heard the intro, but just more understanding of what your practice is, the types of clients you service and the types of matters you handle. Please. Of course. Um, so I started, you know, the practice has been almost now um, a decade old. And I think before that, I spent a substantial amount of my time actually writing for TV and radio in India. Uh, to give a sense of the practice, I think it's a mixed bag. I started early days of my career being a talent lawyer, and I represent even today a lion's share of the talent when it comes to film, music, and TV in India. Uh, but then 
increasingly in the last few years, it's a mixed bag of talent on the one hand, and then in certain other instances where we've acted for a variety of um, technology companies, uh, services, platforms, uh, record labels, publishers, um, studios, anyone and everyone that has had an India-facing interest or an interest as far as emerging markets are concerned. And I think that's evolved as uh, one of the specialties, right, to help facilitate a lot of cross-border conversation and actually increasingly with, with the way content and technology have evolved and are being consumed. Um, I find myself more and more involved in that space, helping clients navigate um, emerging markets like India. Sounds fantastic. Um, and so, how did you, how did you get here? I mean, what you know, your overall training and career trajectory that got you to this place, and fact, and to found your own firm as well as a, as a young person. Like I said, in a whole different lifetime, I started write. I used to write for television in India, and did a fair amount of uh, scripted and unscripted television back home. Uh, I did a lot of radio and just basically spent all of my time during high school and college and law school actually being on a set. And, um, you know, I was a young kid in uh, her late teens, early 20s, doing all sorts of odd jobs uh, in and out of a recording studio, dubbing sessions, being on a set, at times filling in as an actor, so that, you know, for an actor, so they could like the shot when the actor actually walks in. And you know, looking looking back at, at that time, of course, I think I was being a huge disappointment to my uh, to my mom, who couldn't fathom the idea of why is her daughter like not behaving like any other normal um, quote unquote Indian Indian child, right? Because there's so much emphasis on academics, especially in Indian culture, and I think I was being a complete disappointment. And here I was being on sets, doing every kind of uh, you know production or uh, writing related activity. But looking back at that time, right, I think if I had not done that, or, or let me put it another way, I think it's all of those experiences and just sort of looking at it from the other side of the table that brings such a different edge to what I'm able to do today, right? And especially in my early days, when I started out as a talent attorney, you have so much empathy because you've, you've been on the other side, you understand what it is like to be in the creator's shoes. And equally, because you understand there are so many dynamics, right? There are so many considerations. Very often clients um, will sort of express how at times they feel shortchanged. And, you know, it's a constant reminder to uh, have them reflect on the fact that, look, it's always a commercial give and take. And I think I heavily owe and attribute a lot of the success that we've had in, we've had in building the practice and bringing it to where it is today to my time in the industry. And I'm not saying, you know, it wasn't a lot of success. Actually, it wasn't any success. It was a lot of consistent failure. But I think the big success out of it all is that it taught you so many lessons and so many different things that I feel very few um, young lawyers in my experience um, have, have had the ability to get that experience and marry it into active practice. Thank you so much. I have a couple of follow-ups that I'm, uh, first of all, just literally the, um, practical aspects of you being trained, seasoned enough as an attorney to get to the place of, of founding your own firm, for, you know, obviously for which, for which you're a name partner, and just the, the nature and structure of the firm, just for us, uh, any any emerging attorney who wants to have a sense of what that means, and, and also in particular where you are in India. I know that, you know, when you look at it from an outsider's lens, it all feels too much too soon. 
right? We've been in this profession. I understand how dominated it can be uh, and how heavily dictated it is by seniority and age. Um, and I think that's why it's important to sort of take a moment and recognize that whilst the journey as a lawyer may have been relatively shorter, it's also all of the past experience working in the business, right? Being in the industry. Uh, that's one. I think I, you know, to answer your question, I started my career as a litigation lawyer, worked with a solicitor's firm in India, uh, was part of their commercial litigation and disputes resolution team. And I, I truly believe that again, adds a very different edge, very different dimension to your practice. Um, today, the practice is a mixed bag of both being on the transaction side as well as litigation. But I think because my training ground has been litigation and it's still very much, I'm, I'll always be a litigation attorney at heart. Um, I think it just helps you look at any problem, any transaction with a very different lens, right? Because you're also thinking 10 steps ahead and thinking, okay, how is that going to hold up in a court of law? Or what is it actually going to mean when it comes to enforcement or execution, right? Um, so that's once I started my career doing litigation, very briefly worked with a, with a law firm here in New York, went back to India. And I think that's when I decided to set up my own law firm. Um, the reasons to do it were, were many fold, but I think a big part of it, and which even today remains true to our values or the core of uh, Anand Anand Kimani is uh, we wanted to set a culture that would outlive all the names on the door, right? And I think to a great extent we've succeeded in doing that. Simple things, right? For example, we're a women-led firm. Uh, the ratio of female to male attorneys in the firm is nine is to one. There are very few firms, uh, I, I think, in, in most markets and most definitely India that are able to point that out as part of their culture, right? And I think and it all comes to- I mean, without question, that's that's very awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And and more so in a place like India, that's any that has so many, um, so many, many challenges when it comes to some of these issues, right? Um, so I think that has been the driving factor to set up the firm. Uh, we merged, so I started a small boutique practice when I moved back from New York in 2014, which was called Kimani and Associates. And then about four years ago, we merged with another legacy IP firm to form Anand and Anand and Kimani, where I lead the firm's practice in Bombay. And um, I often point out to client, you know, point out to a lot of people who want to try and understand what the practice is like. It's a lot of the clientele is entertainment, but I think what we end up doing is to support that clientele, to support the practice area, right? So, and it, it, literally there's a day we're dealing with, uh, you know, also a broad range of uh, issues, right? From defamation to sexual harassment, to trademark infringement for a producer client to, uh, you know, just plain vanilla endorsements or production contracts uh, to advising on aspects of corporate law. If somebody is doing an equity deal, I think just given how, extensively the nature of environment and content and media has evolved i think it coupled with that is the need for attorneys to be more dynamic in their approach to entertainment and the clientele in that sector uh thank you so much and i totally concur we've talked about it on other versions of this podcast event about attorneys uh, with respect to attorneys being seasoned and trained at least in litigation makes them a better transactional attorney um, you know, in terms of doing deals and anticipating uh, what could go wrong. Thank you so much for all that. Um, so now just turning to uh, the, the, the landscape in Indian entertainment industry, um, the, the players, you know, to what extent it's sort of similarly similar to the US or not at all. Um, the content being created, obviously we know what Bollywood is, um, you know, what else is there, um, you know, what the landscape is in terms of content, the players, 
uh, and the consumer habits and trends? I mean, that's a big question, but you can break it down. I, I try and do justice to it as much as I can. I think, again, like I like I pointed out earlier, it, you know, a few years ago, yes, a lot of the business probably would have been uh, Bollywood or quote unquote largely related to films, right? Whether it was even the music that we consumed or just the movies that we watched. But I think in the last few years, especially in the last couple of years, just given the amount of different services, platforms, um, technology companies that have penetrated the market or that have emerged locally, the entire dynamic has shifted, right? We're no longer um, an entertainment industry that is solely dependent on the film business necessarily, right? Uh, it's certainly not just restricted to Bollywood. Um, and I'm, I'm very conscious, I know broadly from a, from a Western market lens, we tend to look at the Indian entertainment business as Bollywood, but factually, given how diverse and massive India is, there is more than one film industry to begin with. So yes, you have Bollywood, which is dominant, but equally the Southern part of India has its own movie industry with different languages, which is at times uh, as dominant, if not more as Bollywood. And then you have the Northern, the Punjabi film and music industry. So I feel when one looks at India, it probably would be ill-informed to only look at it from the lens of Bollywood, but it's more important to look at it in a wider cultural aspect, a uh, sense of what India truly is and what the market is composed of. Um, but interestingly, in recent times, you find that there's a lot of activity, a lot of content that's happening outside the movie business. Right? You have OTD platforms that are local players. Almost every relevant local broadcaster has its own OTD platform. So for example, uh, Star, which was a big platform, which is a relevant distributor in India, has Hotstar now right. uh, with their acquisition, Disney Plus Hotstar. You have Viacom that has Woot, there's Z, which has Z5. And then of course, all of the global, some of the global players that have presence in India, including Netflix and Amazon. And in more recent times, you also have HBO and Lionsgate that have announced their imminent entries into India. And that's on the film and TV side, right? And on the music side, you've got not just, you know, more recently you had Warner, which was the only major that was uh, last to enter into India that is now set up presence in India alongside Sony and Universal. You've got publishers like Cobalt that have entered the market. Um, you increasingly see more and more deals where Indian artists are being signed to Western publishers or record labels having uh, joint ventures that are being set up between two artists across the across America and India. And I don't think we saw a lot of that uh, till even five years ago, right? With, of course, uh, a certain exception of extremely massive names, right? Today, increasingly in our day-to-day -day workflow, you're seeing transactions where you have Indian talent being attached, let's say, in a writer's room on a foreign language production that's based out of America, right? Or an American production that's one, you know, that needs to have, um, needs to be set up in India for a variety of reasons, including at times even tax purposes, right? Um, so I think the entire dynamic has changed, even in terms of day-to-day -day contracts or practices, I feel increasingly, and part of the reason is I think, uh, thankfully to the entry of a lot of foreign players and their presence in India, where a lot of the market practices have been aligned or are being aligned to practices or deal constructs that we see here in the Western markets, right? So you do have pay or play, you do have passive royalties, you do see escalations, bonuses, right? On the music side, you have uh, publishing splits, you've got record deals, you've got distribution deals that have advances and then a certain recoupment model. So I think increasingly there is more uh, uniformity 
in deals that we see in the western markets and it i think makes life a lot simpler for one to draw a parallel and say okay yes there are certain nuances when you're doing business in a local market like india but here's how we can make sure that it falls in line or is aligned with uh, you know your practices in other markets or in line with global policies that you may you may want to implement for your service including in india um and i think it's inter- it's an interesting time truly to be practicing entertainment or uh, being a part of the media or the tech business at this point of time because there's an opportunity like i said to sort of step out of the norm or traditionally how indian quote and good bollywood deals were done and try and introduce uh, a new method or a new way of um, constructing deals thank you so much and and i know that um i've met you know ca agents who work in india and so i know that there are the us agencies have people on the ground there there you know their offices there right i think i know that um but is there the same sort of um structure where one when one has achieved a certain degree of commercial success they'll also they'll have management and they'll have agents and either those will be american service providers or indian service providers or i would can- say i it's an, it's interesting that you bring that up right early and i i would say yes and no so the music side i by and large i i still do think to a certain extent entertainment in india is a heavily unorganized sector right um it's and it's interesting and i think perhaps it's true of a lot of other markets as well where you had artists that were being traditionally managed by parents or a sibling or a best friend and you know india is no different uh, to a limited extent when it comes to that and i think perhaps i see it a tad bit more in uh, music than i see it in film and tv but nevertheless you do find that it's prevalent right um, very often even for some of the biggest talent you will see that uh, the the person who's managing the talent is um, a parent or a or their spouse or a best friend right um, equally there are agencies that have emerged i don't think uh, there's a clear distinction in india as of now between the role of an agent versus the role of a manager right often people confuse the two and i think um you know in india often agencies will double up as managers as well uh that's like the same uh, prohibitions as you do let's say in california we have the talent agencies act and that would you know prohibit non agents from proc- from procuring employment you don't have that issue in india you don't have that at all actually and you know there there is no there's no act that has certainly no rules or a union or an association so i'm not surprised <laughs> <laughs> and then you so i think that's one fundamental distinction right that you don't have a separation between agency agent or manager um i think equally when it comes to the talent side you you still don't have a robust active uh guild right you don't have guild guidelines yes there's a lot of effort being put on that front there's a screenwriters association similarly you have an association that focuses on the interests of music composers and songwriters but it's all evolving in real time as we speak right there are developments taking place every month uh, that are inching it closer to where it needs to be but i think it's still going to be a little bit a little some more time to eventually get to where things really need to be um and i think um, you know a it's um, th- that's one of the fundamental things to bear in mind when it comes to india um again in terms of uh, 
you know more local practices yes coming to talent some of them will sign with agencies um there's limited talent that has foreign representation i think that really depends on the scale of what the artist is um and not you know again it, it just i think india is today being looked at as a very important emerging market and is usually on the top of um everyone's emerging market wish list right uh, but having said that it's it's still i think work in progress where you're seeing more indian talent cross over and i think once that activity picks up you will see more and more of them having representation today yes some of the most relevant or i would say let's say the a list talent does have representation separately here in america and they have separate representation in india uh, but it's it's not a norm across the board thank you for explaining that um and i know you've touched on this already a little bit but just to to the extent you know you want to elaborate how your practice your offices in india i mean you're here you were in LA, now you're in New York, you you go out of your way to spend a fair amount of time in the States. Um, I know we talked about even expanding the, on that a bit. So uh, how does your practice in India intersect with the business here? Like, uh, what does that look like? Um, interestingly, we're, uh, you know, thankfully on top of everyone's wish list as far as um, expansion is concerned, it is relevant. And I think the more Indian stream, just the more the digital economy picks up, the social media economy picks up, right? It's a country with over a billion people. It's a very high volume of streams and views that one simply cannot ignore, right? And I think that's what has helped pivot everyone's interest as far as India is concerned. Um, I think in the last few years, uh, we've been fortunate to have worked with most of the services, platforms, studios, tech companies that have entered the Indian market, right? Help them understand and navigate the local landscape because it can be very, very challenging. Um, a, that it's a, it's a completely, um, you know, it's on the other end of the other end of where the Western markets are at, uh, the language at times is a barrier. Yes, a lot of a lot of the um, con contracts are in English and day-to-day -day mode of communication is in English. But even then, you know, when you're going into actual production or you need certain uh, government permissions or, you know, there are local issues, you're going to need boots on ground. And I think that's where it puts uh, someone like me in an interesting position where you're able to understand there's enough equity and knowledge on ground, but it's important to also help clients here understand it in a language that they are able to comprehend and then help them sort of marry the two, right? Because you don't want to be doing one thing. Imagine if you were a global, uh, if you were a large studio with presence in multiple territories, you don't want to be doing one thing in a certain part of the world and complete something diametrically opposite in another part and not be able to make any sense of it at an organizational level, right? Um, and that's just in terms of day-to-day -day, uh, production or distribution or record, recording deals, right? But let's look at some of the finer aspects in terms of, um, let's say, you know, uh, litigation, what is our stance as far as dispute resolution is concerned? Are we opting for arbitration, mediation? Are we going to go to local courts? You know, in a lot of contracts, for example, we'll see that there is often a practice of waiving injunctive reliefs, right? Are we in a position to do that in India? Is it necessarily in my best interest to have my injunctive rights waived or to ask for a waiver? You know, I think all of those nuances is where you definitely need local advice to help you sort of weigh the pros and cons of we is it a good idea to take a boilerplate template that we've been following for so long and just adapt it to India? And the answer more often than not is that no, it's it's not the right thing to do. 
Um, another very different example would be, uh, you know, in terms of dealing with rights of uh, creators, you know, your right, what, what is the explanation for moral rights or what is considered to be fair use? Do intermediate, do social media platforms have the same safe harbor defense in as they do in certain other markets? Would they be able to do that in India? What sort of uh, licenses do we need to broker with PROs in that country? Do, is there a concept of equitable remuneration? I mean, the list is endless, right, when it comes to day-to-day -day operational issues. I'm going to drill into a couple of things you said, actually. Uh, first of all, I mean, let me know if you ever get an American company to agree to not have you waive uh, injunctive relief, uh, your entitlement to, but, but, I, but, I, but I take your point that you don't necessarily need to mirror those provisions and those, uh, those contracts when you're dealing with Indian to Indian uh, business to business uh, transactions. Um, so a couple of things. First of all, I remember seeing that the, the deals, let's say for Netflix, um, even with productions that were in India, they were under California law, right? Netflix basically just used its, and it over, it has to approve everything that happens, right? So, but I think that's changing a little bit. So um, to speak to to what extent those, those big American companies, when they are doing business in India, might not necessarily be using those same old American contracts. I'm curious to know about that. And also, while you're at it, <laughs> um, you know, just a few of the key similarities and differences, you already raised a few issues in terms of copyright law and contract law, just some things that stand out to you that you kind of keep in mind are very American, but, you know, either the same in India or not. Um, I think in terms, you know, to deal with what you raised first about templates and documentation in India, um, in the beginning, most of the entities, I think, whilst, whilst they're in the process of setting up an Indian entity, a local Indian entity to transact and do day-to-day -day business, or whilst they're evaluating the decision that do we really need to have a separate local entity, right? Because they're two different considerations. You could have pre local presence or your service could be accessible in a territory, but you need not uh, go ahead, go in and set up a corporate territory, um, especially in the early stages of an entity being set up uh, in, any for, in any new country, right? Uh, because with that comes the whole other aspect of regulatory and statutory compliance you have employment issues you know you have policy work policies that you need to adapt and i think in my experience fairly often i've seen that um it perhaps is a two-step process right you don't want to go in necessarily on day one have an entity set the whole thing up infuse capital and then start operations sometimes you might want to just go in there make the service accessible, but really cross that bridge in terms of, you know, setting up presence when you really need to. And I think that's in, in all the instances where I've experienced that sort of deferred decision is where I've noticed that all the early, day con early days of their contracting in India would be with the foreign entity. And therefore, naturally, that foreign law would apply, even though if it were, even though it was a transaction that sort of uh, had nexus to India. Uh, but you'll notice that once the local entity is set up, I think I'm yet to come across an incident where I've seen that, you know, despite the local entity entering into a contract where, you know, two local parties and we're still opting for foreign jurisdiction. So I find that in the lifetime of uh, their presence being set up in Indian operations on ground becoming more robust, that stance does tend to change. Uh, that's one. And of course, then there are the finer aspects to consider, right, from a litigation point of view that, okay, even if you did um, have foreign jurisdiction, ultimately you're going to have to go through execution or enforcement proceedings locally in an Indian court, which from experience, a lot of litigation lawyers will tell you can be um, equally time consuming, if not more, had you gone through original proceedings in India to begin with. 
and that again is an important factor to consider that maybe it's it's counterproductive to have a foreign jurisdiction for all the business that we're transacting in india and then think of instances where you need absolute urgent interim relief right it's the, you know you you want to be able to move court locally because you know just from experience i'm sure you'll agree already that it's just faster to mobilize especially in the day and age that we're living in situations are erupting where sometimes even 24 hours is, feels like a lot of time to get relief from a court of law so you certainly want to uh, sort of weigh the odds i think you i've also seen a hybrid form of you know yes foreign law will apply but if parties need to seek injunctive relief then either one of us can move an appropriate forum right um so that's that's one um to answer your um to come to the second part of the question and um sorry i'm i'm not blanking out with what the second part was oh i mean you know um i was also just looking for comparisons uh, you you raised some copyright issues and just to the extent that the law either tracks what we know about in the US or even in the European Union, either similar or different? I think one of the biggest things that often stands out to uh, clients from the Western markets about India is that how it still predominantly tends to be a works for hire market, right? Okay. And I don't think it's so glaring in the film and TV context because yes, services are commissioned, especially on the creator side. But I think it's more on the music side of things, including when it comes to non-film music. It's it's changing slowly and steadily, especially when we're dealing with a lot of non-film or independent music, where a lot of the younger talent that is more savvy and understands publishing slightly better is keen on uh, holding back some of the publishing, if not all of it, uh, or you know, actively discussing songwriting songwriter splits with other writers that may have collaborated, but. You do, still don't see that happening uh, for a majority of the deals that stem from that market, right? Uh, and I think going in, that often surprises a lot of people that are doing business in India. Uh, the other, and I think that's the that's a slightly sort of more uh, complex issue to deal with when it comes to India, is on this whole uh, right to receive royalty that was introduced uh, by the copyright law in India uh, when it saw an amendment a few years ago. Uh, I think it relates to the previous issue that a lot of the market was a works for hire market and commissioned works as a result of which um, authors of works didn't really see any royalties despite works being exploited so the law was amended uh, to sort of take the other extreme view that even if you assigned a hundred percent of your copyright in the works you cannot assign or waive your right to receive royalty uh -huh. and i think that has changed a lot uh, it changes the entire sort of um, you know, even power dynamic or equation or the conversation around how um, authors of works are looked at or what their engagement really means. Uh, so I think it, it was definitely a step in the in the right direction. Uh, but you know, one of the other nuances will I think is is around uh, publishing, right? Music publishing is a complicated subject when it comes to uh, looking at it from from the Indian lens. And we've had all sorts of conflicting judgments, uh, especially in recent times. And I, you know, it's a it's a larger subject, I think, for which we probably need a separate uh, podcast. But I think those are the few things that stand out as far as uh, India is concerned. And, I, you know, one of the others that I mentioned previously about the fact that there isn't a guild that really dictates pricing or, you know, what uh, minimum rates should be. And uh, I think often you'll, at least in my experience, I do find clients turning to me and saying, oh, is this 
you know, is is there a minimum requirement? What do we do? How do credits need to read, right? And uh, you know, of course, you want to do something like I said that is as much in uh, line with practices that you have globally in other parts of the world. So you want to try and do that in India, but um, as of now, there isn't any sort of guideline. But uh, sorry, one last thing that I will point out, and I think it's it's relevant because there's a lot of talk about it at the moment in India is censorship on OTT platforms. Um, and what does, you know, a lot, coupled with that, I think uh, a lot of the recent changes to India's Information Technology Act and laws and what does it mean for an intermediary? What is the extent of your liability? You know, can platforms have a self-regulation code or is there a need to censor content on including on OTT platforms? I think there are more cultural nuances that one needs to bear in mind uh, when it comes to India and not necessarily legal. I feel a lot of those nuances could lead to legal repercussions and therefore they become more relevant. Thank you so much. Um, I have just a couple more questions and we'll open it up, but real quick follow-up though, in terms of waiver of droit moral or moral rights, does Indian law track France or US or neither? <laughs> so one, there are, there are two different schools of thought, but moral rights are again uh, for the better part given the same footing um, as the right to receive royalty in the sense that it is an inalienable right right you cannot have one waive their moral rights uh, but again i'll give you an interesting example and i i i'm sure you perhaps uh, come across this uh, in america as well but you have a lot of uh, morals clauses in contracts especially in light of recent contracts right? Everything that transpires and uh, you have all sorts of reps and warranties. And I think what stands out to me is, and I, I noticed this in India and um, which, which went to the extent of saying that if, if there was a violation of any of those reps and warranties, then they would strip away credit, right? And I think wow. there's an argument to make there that how does a, you know, especially- that, 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 That's arguably the right of attribution that's being stripped away. Exactly. Right. Um, and there are so many, many more uh, linked situations. And of course, the answer that you get is, well, it's, it's you know, it's meant to be a deterrent, etc. But uh, you and I both know that, you know, how that entire argument could unfold when it comes to actually correlating the two. Right. Uh, but that's that's something that I thought was interesting, including with some of the um, foreign OTT players wanting to implement that uh, in India. So Super. So my last question is going to be a two parter. <laughs> as is my way, and then we'll open it up. Um, what's your parting advice uh, on two fronts? One is for folks who want to explore um, doing transactions, entertainment transactions with people represented in India, people in the Indian market, and just generally for emerging uh, law students, or law students who are going to be who are going to soon be entertainment attorneys, but, you know, for them to uh, design their practices and careers wherever they may be and whatever transactions they may enter into. And thank you. I think for the first part, I would say get advice, get local advice. And when I say advice, uh, please don't get advice from people qualified to advise, not, a, not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a trick. It, it can be a tricky market. So you want to make sure that you're getting sound local advice it is important you cannot you will you're going to have challenges navigating the market without that um and to young law students um i would say you know have you need two things right um one is that of course try and understand 
different parts of you know even what it looks like to be on the on the commercial side of things i think you often lose sight of that uh, and you need to have some semblance of how does something actually function for you to be able to negotiate or defend something better um and i think the other is sort of linked to the first one is um especially with entertainment and i'm sure a lot of us will agree um that a lot you need to have a commercial bent of mind especially i, I because you're you you're trying to find a solution right often i see even during negotiations where and perhaps i can speak for india because that that is the style right you're just i think the the stereotype is that if i'm an attorney i have to be aggressive it's got to be my way or the highway you know without realizing but i think more and more again just given how the nature of entertainment has evolved it's the beginning of a relationship right you want two people to start off on a note feeling that each one got they wanted what they wanted and that this is going to be um you know a fair relationship and it's it's not about antagonizing the other side so i would say make it less about yourself and make it more about your clients wonderful thank you so much um well now we will open it up to the gallery um and i know this sometimes this takes a minute priyanka for people to warm up and ask questions but I, I I know we'll have a couple at least, and then uh, and then I know it's late by you, so we won't keep we won't hold you for too long. But uh, but anyone who has questions about anything, well, almost anything, Rocket <laughs> doesn't give stock advice, <laughs> at least not on not when recorded. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna call on people. I'm just kidding. Um, is there, well, while, while people are warming up, this usually, this is how it goes. Is there anything that you didn't say that you'd like to share with us um, that you sort of, as you reflect on the evening? Yes, actually, I think it's interesting. And I, again, I'm speaking from my, my own personal experience about just how much entertainment or just content has become global in the truest sense of the word, right? Um, I, I wouldn't have imagined a time even five years ago where one would be having this conversation, right? That, hey, how different is the market looking? What do we need to be aware of? So, and equally, I think there have been instances earlier, it used to be that a lot of, you know, foreign clients would reach out to us wanting very specific local advice. But in recent times, I've actually seen it being the other way around where we have reached out to a lot of different attorneys or different experts in the market to try, you know, where clients have from Indian clients have been involved or working on foreign projects or foreign transactions. Um, and I think it's amazing to see how just content can be truly plugged in anywhere, anytime. Uh, you know, you, we were just, I was discussing earlier today with another attorney friend of mine, how, uh, there's, there's a, there's an artist that's, you know, from here, but for some strange reason has the most amount of views in the Philippines. Oh, wow. And uh, the thing we have no idea why. Gonna, do you do you have what to, to what you do attribute that? But does sounds like you don't know. Sorry, so no. I was asked what does anyone attribute that, but people don't seem to know. No, not at all, and I think that's so fascinating, right? I think you you see that in a different context. I think when it comes to some some kinds of Indian music, right, where you have an audience in in different pockets of the world outside of India, and it just makes you sort of. Uh, appreciate this moment about how you can, how content truly helps connect the dots. Absolutely, absolutely. My my kid watches these gentlemen from Croatia who play the cellos, who are Croatian, like I said, and they are apparently big rock stars in Japan, and they're going to be playing the Hollywood Bowl. And you know, they started out just having videos on YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. Margaret Hall has a question. Hi. Hi. 
Hi. You touched on it a, a little bit about uh, that English is the predominant language of the contracts and the transactional work. But since there are so many languages in India, how much, if you could just expand a little bit on how much that plays into the role of attorneys you hire, do you try to make sure that attorneys have fluency in a certain number of languages? And if the contract is in English, but the entertainer is not an English speaker, then what, how do you work that out with making sure they understand what's going on, even though most of the entertainment contracts in industry would be done in the English language? That's, that's very interesting, Margaret. Uh, to answer your question, um, most of the attorneys that we've, you know, we've hired would be fluent in English, but I think for anyone that's grown up in India, you're going to speak at least more than one Indian dialect, right? Uh, so that's, that's, I think, an inherent, um, you know, uh, skill set and one that we take for granted that, yes, even if they're well-versed or fluent in English, they, they're conversant enough to hold a conversation in certain other Indian languages, right? Uh, so that's one. With artists, I think even if the artist is, is not fluent or well-versed in English, and we come across those situations a lot of times, right, where the client is not familiar with the language or is having difficulty expressing himself or herself in that language. Um, I think, like I said, because most of us fortunately are well versed with, at the very least, Hindi, which is our national language alongside English, we're able to sort of translate and explain to the client and get instructions that, okay, this is what is going to happen, or this is how XYZ would translate, or these are the effects that it's going to have, and you know, then proceed on the basis of that sign off. But all documentation, especially when it comes to entertainment contracts, are, are in English. Of course, you have other practice areas, like, for example, real estate, depending on where the property is, you might have local language documentation. And, you know, you we at times may need to engage attorneys in that particular state that are well-versed with the local language or with local laws in that state. But otherwise, by and large, all court proceedings in the High Court and the Supreme Court, arguments, pleadings, submissions, contracts, everything is in English. Thank you so much. Uh, I think David Helfand uh, has a question for you and your former uh, panelist in Mumbai. How are you, Han? Uh, nice to see you. Thank you for coming and speaking to us. Um, I, I have... Uh, an interesting situation that just came up where I'm working on a docu-series for one of the biggest recording artists in India and had a head bump a bit with uh, the representatives for the artists because I structured it the way I would normally do in a, you know, a, a TV deal here and it was dramatically different than the way they wanted to structure the deal based on their experiences in India, and also based on the strength and clout of that uh, performer in the Indian market. What, what advice can you give people about how to balance the interests of trying to get the deal done without offending the Indian representatives, knowing that we do things maybe one way, they do things a different way. And, you know, it's all about when the rubber meets the road is who's going to give. So how do you balance the interests of getting the project to the next step without offending the people um, on the other side who maybe 
don't see that your way of structuring the deal is the proper way to do it for their client. Right. Well, I'm first of all, I'm I'm sorry to hear that, and that can't be an easy one to to deal with. Um, and I think again, culturally, it's it's sort of you know, uh, one has to be a little careful on uh, how we sort of tiptoe around people's sentiments, emotions, personalities uh, when doing business uh, in India. Right. But having said that, I think one would imagine that would they not have articulated what they wanted or how they wanted the deal to be structured in the beginning? Is that not what would have happened? Well, we actually presented a deck to them in the beginning to explain exactly how the project would be uh, moving forward. Right. And everything was agreed upon. And then when we put the shopping and rights agreement together, all of a sudden there was a big roadblock. Interestingly enough, the way it ultimately resolved itself, the performer said, no, I really want to do this deal. I'm signing the contract. <laughs> and so the, he basically told his representatives, stop doing this. We're moving forward. And thank God we had a good relationship with the talent, but it doesn't always work out that way. No, but, and, but David, that's exactly uh, what I was going to say, right? Two things. I think one would be the classic record everything which is what we do here right in terms of recording instructions whether it's in an email but just to have some sort of track of you know this is what was said to me on day zero and here's where we are today but the other thing which is actually more important like you pointed out uh, is i've always at least from experience realized that it's the best for me to directly get instructions or a sign off from the talent itself, uh, not any representative. And I think the reason for that is uh, twofold. Number one is that, like I said, a lot of it is still slightly unorganized in India, right? Everybody is not, especially, you know, managers are not, I, I don't say managers, but just representatives, right? Are not necessarily as nuanced in, the, in, in deal making or deal structures as we find here in a lot of Western markets. Um, a lot of uh, the knowledge or instructions is often based on hearsay or, you know, what someone else has done. And, you know, perhaps even that person has inflated uh, what they've done or is grossly misrepresenting what, what really has gone into their deal. Uh, but it's just that, right? You're acting on the hype or whatever you've been hearing in the market. So I feel from experience, I have realized in all these, in all such instances that I would just pick up the phone on the talent. In fact, so much of that in recent times, we sort of, you know, Yes, we'll obviously work with managers and agents because they're a part of the artist team, but I feel it gives us greater comfort to know that we also have a direct channel of communication with the, with the client himself. Right. That's your ultimate client. Sure. I mean, one of the things that was seemingly a very simple issue, but it became a bit of a roadblock was, you know, for purposes of the production, we needed it to be California law governing and the representatives insisted that it be handled under Indian law, which we knew would never be acceptable to the studio. Of course, no, and and that's completely understandable. Again, it just takes someone that's more well-versed, I think locally to prevail over the client and say, this makes sense in this particular instance, I cannot justify having local law. Thank you so much. That was a question from David Helfant, who's a Southwestern alum, a fabulous music attorney, and uh, also an adjunct professor at, our law, at Southwestern Law School. And actually another alum, Ken Wu, 
from anonymous content has a question, a couple. Uh, Ken, I think uh, if, you, if you want, just to go ahead and ask your question. I think he just has to unmute. Exactly. Oh, there sorry. There it is. Um, how is COVID affecting production right now in India, particularly for a foreign company to go in there to film? Well, believe it or not, a lot of production has resumed in India. Bombay is, is the heart of where most of the production activities will take place. And um, literally this afternoon, I had a foreign client making plans to fly down to India because of one of their productions resuming shoot mid-September. So it looks like, um, you know, I, I, good or bad, I'm, I'm, I think I'll find out when I'm back home in India in a few days, but production activities have resumed full swing. Uh, and in fact, it was one of the few activities that I think has been given a complete carte blanche to resume fully without any restrictions uh, in India. Thank you so much. I know it's late for you, Priyanka. So uh, unless anyone has any follow-up urgent questions, uh, please all give me, uh, join me in, in a warm thank you, uh, you know, virtual hands, real hands, whatever hands you have at your disposal. Thank you, uh, thank you so much. It was delightful. And thank you everyone for attending. Um, and uh, we'll, let, we'll let you know when the podcast has been published and, and Ken Wu's podcast is about to be published. So we'll keep you all posted. Thanks so much, Priyanka. Have a lovely evening. We'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to A Conversation with Podcast, hosted by Southwestern Law School's Biederman Institute. This series is generously supported by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find information about upcoming conversations at www.swlaw.edu.